0: Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that living in community is the most effective and the healthiest way. For us humans to live, I believe that most of us, in fact, most likely over 95% of us, are cooperative, collaborative people. We're tribal animals. We like doing things together, all kinds of things, whether it's a sewing circle or a poker game or watching a football game or watching movies, going to the theater. We love eating together. We really like being together. We're tribal that way. However, at the very same time, we must always be aware that there's a very small percentage of us that are very different. These people are dominators. They're predators. These are people who would have us be subjects rather than citizens. Look back in history where you go back to the pharaohs, where a few people at the top had 99% of the population in slavery. You can move forward in history. There were a couple of experiments with democracy and republic in Greece and in Rome. But, of course, one-third of their population were slaves. And then, finally, a couple of hundred years ago, we broke away. We rebelled against the greatest army and the greatest navy in the world, a little group of ragtag people in this place called America. And we rebelled against the king. And we won, and we turned ourselves from subjects. Subjects are people who, with the, with the flick of a hand, could have their heads ch- uh, chopped off. We changed to citizens, democracy, one person, one vote, republic, everyone equal before the law. But it's a fragile thing, because there are those. Look out through history, whether it's Napoleon jumping ahead, Hitler, Mussolini more modern, Bolsonaro, Trump. These are people who would have us be subjects again. We must be mindful. We must stay politically aware. I know these are hard times to stay politically aware, particularly since 60 to 70% of our country right now are living paycheck to paycheck and might be thinking, what's he saying about political aware? I'm trying to just keep food on the table. Well, what I'm saying is, You have to stay politically aware aware, even when you're struggling to put food on the table and pay the rent, because if we don't do so, we could lose our citizenship and become subjects again. In the words of one of my heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today, I have the distinct privilege of having a strong advocate for citizenship with freedom here on our program mind body health and politics dr edel the ethan nadelman has been a policy thinker a policy writer and perhaps one of the strongest advocates in the country for sane policy reform let me give you just a drop of history the drug policy foundation was established in 18 uh, 1987 and uh, by Arnold Treback and, and Kevin Zeese. And it was aimed to promote a more rational and compassionate approach to drug policy. Ethan Nadelman founded the Linda, Linda Smith, uh boy, I'm stuttering today, the Lindesmith <laughs> Foundation in 1994. And then in 2000, the two of them combined to form the Drug Policy Alliance, which has been a major force in the United States. We're going to hear more about that from Ethan himself. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Ethan.
1: Oh, well, Richard, it's a pleasure to be honest with you. Thanks for inviting me.
0: So shall we give a little history of the Drug Policy Alliance and what it stands for as a way of introducing our talk?
1: Sure, Richard. I mean, although I can say for me personally, um, You know, my background in this area in advocacy and the writing and speaking really goes back to the late 1980s. Um, I mean, it was the period at the height of the drug war in the late 1980s. And I had just finished a dissertation on the internationalization of drug enforcement. And I started teaching at Princeton. And I published an article in Foreign Policy magazine, a prestigious publication in early 88, basically saying the whole war on drugs is just, it's, it's essentially like alcohol prohibition that the prohibition of drugs is doing more harms than drug abuse itself, that even though the answer may not be to legalize all drugs, we at least need to understand the extent to which prohibition was a fundamental part of the problem, and to look at other ways of dealing with drugs and controlling and regulating drugs grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. And so I started speaking on the late 80s, got involved with the New Drug Policy Foundation that Arnold Trebek and Kevin Zeese had started and then in the early 90s had the good fortune i guess this was 31 years ago to get a call on the blue from a guy named George Soros who at that point was not very well known but he was a very wealthy philanthropist who'd been foc- and financier who'd been focusing on central and eastern europe and the former soviet union and you know communism had fallen faster than anybody expected and open societies were breaking out everywhere And Soros was asking himself the question, well, I've always assumed America is the model of an open society. In which ways is it not? And one of the first things that hit him between the eyes was the war on drugs. So he invited me to lunch and we hit it off. And one thing led to another. And I left Princeton, started the Linda Smith Center, named after Alfred Linda Smith, the first distinguished American academic to challenge conventional thinking about drug policy, and then built that up over six years as part of his foundation. And then in 2000, the Drug Policy Foundation had fallen on hard times. So we had kind of absorbed that into Linda Smith Center and created the Drug Policy Alliance. And then I ran that, you know, until 2017, until six years ago when I stepped down. But I think, what the, I think the key elements for your audience to appreciate about are this. The first one is that we focused on three major areas in our advocacy. About one third of our work focused on ending cannabis prohibition. First, with legalization of medical marijuana, then with reducing marijuana arrests and decriminalizing possession, and ultimately, legally regulating cannabis for all adults. And that was the part that got the greatest amount of media attention. The second third of our work was ending the role of the war on drugs in mass incarceration. And that meant getting rid of mandatory minimum drug sentences, providing alternatives to incarceration, all of those things that were affecting, the you know, America is becoming the biggest incarcerator in the world. And trying to roll back the drug war piece of it, which had really been the driving force of mass incarceration from the 80s until the aughts. And then the last third of our work was basically making a serious commitment to treating drug use and addiction as a health issue, not a criminal issue, which began with a focus on needle exchange programs and access to sterile syringes to reduce the spread of HIV-AIDS and then expand it to overdose prevention, all sorts of things there, to teaching Americans about European-style t- cutting-edge approaches to dealing with drug use and addiction and street crime and all that, um, with the work around um, uh, a, drug, a sort of sex education model to drug education, the part that Marsha Rosenbaum pioneered with her Safety First program at Drug Policy Alliance. So those were the three big areas of work, and we did this with public education. Sometimes with litigation and amicus briefs in the courts, and then most especially by working on legislative reform in state legislatures and occasionally in Congress, and with the ballot initiatives, which began with the medical marijuana initiative in California in 1996, and you know and during my period continued up through all these treatment instead of incarceration initiatives and asset forfeiture reform and you know other sorts of things, and then culminated with the the marijuana legalization initiative in California. And other states in 2016, and over and above that, we devoted a lot of attention—not, you know, maybe 10 percent internationally as well—to helping allies and advocates around the world advance drug policy reform in their own countries. So I'll pause there, but that that gives you sort of an overview of the of the nature of the work, uh, really, since the late 1980s when the war on drugs was at its most hysterical high.
0: You know, I came into the picture because I've been an advocate for the legalization of all substances, uh, based on what I believe is a constitutional right, you're a lawyer, you could give me your opinion on this. I believe it's a constitutional right to ingest what I want to ingest in the privacy of my own home, so long as I don't give it to or harm another human being. Is that one of my rights, Ethan?
1: Well, I mean, not if the Supreme Court doesn't say so. Um, But in this way, I fundamentally agree with you, Richard. I mean, the way I've oftentimes framed it is that we think about what's most kept, I mean, probably one of the greatest things about this country that sort of kept us honest over our almost 250, 240 years of existence is the First Amendment, the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights and the protection of the freedom of speech, press, religion, and assembly, Right. And we know with each of those rights that they're pivotal and they don't only they don't only protect elevated speech. They also protect the oftentimes despicable forms of speech, press, religion or assembly up to the point where you may directly hurt others. Right. Our freedom of speech does not extend to the point of yelling fire in a crowded theater. Our freedom of, of, you know, of of press does not extend to libel. Right. The freedom of religion does not expect extend to committing various forms like human sacrifice, or even certain types of animal sacrifice, right? And with assembly, not to assembling a mob. But it goes very far, and it protects a lot. Now, to my mind, none of those freedoms make much sense unless you assume an underlying right of consciousness, a freedom of consciousness, right? And with that freedom of consciousness comes the freedom of consumption, the right to put into our own bodies what we see fit, so long as it's not resulting in direct serious harms to other human beings. Now, the founding fathers could never have envisioned that there would be some threat to consciousness. They could have envisioned that a government might institute something like drug testing or other types of testing of, the, of our internal aspects of, 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 our, of our being. So in that sense, I fundamentally agree with you that this should it is a fundamental human right, I do believe it should be recognized as a constitutional right. And one of the underlying objectives of my work and of this broader drug policy reform movement is that one day this right of consciousness, this right to consume what we see fit, including mind altering substances, will be treated with the same regard as we finally come to accept the right of of, 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 of you know when it comes to our sexuality right, in the same ways that homosexuality was eventually fully legalized by the Supreme Court after various state governments had already proceeded along that line, that should be, I think and must be, an ultimate objective of the drug policy reform movement.
0: I don't want to get too much into this because I want to stay with the drug policy reform, but there is an aspect of sexuality that is still illegal, which is the selling of pleasure. Uh, and, and, uh, there is something that really needs to be done about that because that is a way of, of subordinating, subjecting, uh, subjugating women. Uh, because they, they, they sell pleasure and make money from it. And I'm sure if men, if men could sell pleasure and make money for, from it in big numbers, uh, this wouldn't be the case, but let's get back to. to well, to, no, to,
1: Richard, just to say on that, I agree with you totally. And I think, you know, there was one point when I was starting my center, the Linda Smith Center, where I thought we would take on those broader issues around, uh, the criminalization or regulation of uh of, of sexual services and such. It is, of course, I I the principle is right. There are efforts um in that direction, including I think the state of Vermont just passed some decriminalization of sex work. So there was a movement in this regard in the US back in the 70s. It kind of disappeared at the end of the 20th century, early 21st century, but it is coming back. And interestingly, the fellow Rob Campia, who ran the marijuana policy project for many years, once he stopped working there, he has moved um, into, he's created an organization, um, I can't remember the exact name of it now, but it aims towards the decriminalization of sex. Now, it is a complicated issue because even among the sex worker community and in the feminist community, there are very different ideas about whether or not this should be, like when we talk about legalizing marijuana, legalizing psychedelics, we're typically talking about legally regulating something. But there are big differences of opinion whether or not sexual work should even be legally regulated, right? Should the state play any role? When you look at the models of um, legalized uh, sex work in Scandinavia, Europe, some other places, you know, government plays all sorts of roles, you know, that are designed to protect both the sex workers as well as their customers and to ensure safety and tax revenue. Um, But, you know, some feel it should just be an utterly free market. Some feel it should not be regulated at all. So, It's a complicated issue, but the principle is, in fact, very much the same. We're very much you and I on the same wavelength about both these
0: issues. The sex workers that I've interviewed favor decriminalization because they believe they will be safer when the police simply don't go after them than in a legal situation where they're going to have to be licensed and regulated. And then if they do something outside of the license, they're open to prosecution and so on. But c- coming well, it's by- hard
1: to say because if you're decriminalized, it doesn't necessarily. If your activity you're engaging in is still illegal, that's right. And then you get victimized. It doesn't going to the police is not always an option. So that one of the arguments for legal regulation, whether you're talking about cannabis markets or sex work, is that people who are victimized have a legal right to go to the police yes. and say they have been victimized. So it, it's tricky. There are no easy answers here, right? As we see with the evolution of cannabis legalization, and as we see whenever the debates spring up about, about you know uh, decriminalizing or legalizing sex work.
0: Well, for me, the basic question is, if I do no harm to another person, do I have a right to sell my sexual services, my physical services, my brain services, whatever services I have to offer, with no harm to another person, am I allowed to sell myself? And and that's what's being used as a, as a way as a as a hammer almost on these women, saying they don't have a right to sell themselves. I right, don't want exactly. to get exactly. Yeah, let's exactly. get back and,
1: to that. that's what's wrong. But go ahead, let's get back yeah. to drugs.
0: Yeah, because yeah. I I came into this in two ways, uh, Ethan. I came into it personally because I took LSD in 1965. I then took it again in 1967. And I recognized not only the great benefits that it did to me internally, but I saw its potential for psychotherapy, and I'm a clinician. I then was administered MDMA by my doctor while it was still legal, and I saw the great benefits of MDMA, uh, particularly for couples therapy. And here the United States government is denying the right. So that's part of how I got uh, originally involved. The other was the constitutional issue, which I mentioned, which is, it's, it's just, I don't know how, what, even what to call it, that we're not allowed to take and eat something that we want to eat in the privacy of our own home, regardless, you know, of what the effect has. So I got involved, and that's when I eventually met you, and I met your, uh, your, your, your advocate and uh, uh, colleague, Dr. Marsha Rosenbaum, who was working with the Drug Policy Alliance on the West Coast. The extent to which the government has been suppressive, if not repressive, has been overwhelming. It it feels at times over these last 50 years, like I'm not living in the country that I thought I was living in. It's almost beyond my comprehension, Ethan, how a government can suppress university level research for half a century and that's what as you well know more than anyone has been going on and then as you've pointed out and taught us and i have followed your lead and talked about the policy has created the largest criminal organization on the planet much bigger than alcohol prohibition created the mafia this this the the narco prohibition has created the narcotraficantes known as the cartels and they're worldwide and yet The country continues these policies. Are we still living with the legacy of Harry Anslinger? I mean, where where is this negativity about these substances? And where are these unusable policies, these actually policies that are creating crime? What's their origin? Who are the people behind this kind of—are they profiting by keeping— the, the, these drugs and, and substances illegal, is that the reason they keep the laws this way?
1: Well, I'm, I mean, Richard, I'll tell you, I mean, you, you, I could go on for hours just answering the various elements of, of the question you just laid out, out Please there. Please do. I mean, I, yeah, <laughs> well, no, not, not for hours here, but, but let's just, um, let's say the following. I mean, you're obviously making, you know, many of the key arguments against the war on drugs and the prohibitionist approach to drugs. And those are the ones that, you know, I was laying out in the late 80s. Other people had laid them out even earlier. And there's no question, like it was like, you know, it was like alcohol prohibition with Al Capone and organized crime and violence and corruption and all of that stuff times 10 times 100. Right. And and very much a global phenomenon. So, I mean, this was a kind of craziness that I mean, on the one hand, it was distinctively it was particularly American in some sense. You know, I sometimes described the U.S. international drug control policy as an international projection of our own domestic psychosis, that we really were crazy about drugs. But the fact of the matter is you had drug prohibitions all around the world. And some of them were, you know, we we were the driving force, the American government throughout the 20th century and into the beginning of the 21st. But you had other countries with their own very fierce prohibitions about one drug or another. You know, you can look at, uh, you know, I mean, obviously it wasn't just the Chinese with their opium wars and, and uh, the reaction to all of that but all sorts of countries would prohibit substances at various periods of time so i think part of it has always been the fear about what happens with these substances and and some of that fear is about people you know tuning in turning on and dropping out uh you know becoming a uh dissidents or deviants some of it is like the fear that people had around the popularization of de- of of the you know say the printing press of new ideas of access to written materials so a sense about you know people, governments or people or rulers who want to keep control or, major- or minorities who want to keep control being fearful of that. Some of it, especially in the U.S., but many other countries has been tied to race so that those drugs which are linked with or perceived as being more commonly used or misused by ethnic or racial minorities are the ones that are more likely to be demonized and criminalized. Whereas those substances that are more popular among the dominant elites or the dominant majority, majority ethnic or religious or racial group, those ones are more likely to be accepted. So that's another element, you know, that goes there. Part of it is that once you develop bureaucracies um, interested in enforcing these laws, they then begin to have a, an interest in perpetuating the laws that they enforce and no longer thinking about the origins or the the legitimacy or illegitimacy of the drugs they enforce. I was always struck in my early research in the 80s in interviewing drug enforcement agents and people involved in all aspects of the government's drug control policy, how profoundly ignorant they were not just about the nature of many psychoactive drugs, but also about the origins of the drug prohibitionist laws. So you have all of those variables coming together, right? Now, I think it's important to understand that if you look in the last, if I compare where we are now in 2023 to where we were in the late 1980s at the height of the drug war, there are some big differences. One is marijuana was part and parcel of the war on drugs back then. And now marijuana is you know, legalized in roughly half the states, producing huge amounts of tax revenue, hundreds of thousands, going on the way to millions of legal jobs, increasingly You know, effectively regulated. I mean, with all the bumps and all the continuing black market stuff, it's a major, major transition. We've gone, when I got started in the late 80s, barely 25% of Americans wanted marijuana to be legal for adults and barely 45, 50% for medical. Now you're talking about 70% of Americans believe marijuana should be legal for adults, 90% believe it should be legal for medicine. You know, thirty-eight states who would have legalized for medical, almost half the states have legalized for all adults. That is monumental, Richard. Nobody would have anticipated that that would have happened just you know fifteen years ago.
0: And except, I ex- just, except one yeah. person would have anticipated it, Abraham Lincoln, because he said well, you can't you can't fool all the people all the time. You can fool yeah, some of the people some of the time, and some of the people all of the time and even all of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. Well, and, and well the,
1: the, fact that, the fact that he was right about, you know, he also sometimes is giving, there's a quote about, about the ills of alcohol prohibition that is attributed to him, but then there's a debate about whether he actually said it. But whether, you know, a lot of this is about timing. And, you know, when I, when I got going on this stuff as an advocate over 30 years ago, you know, I thought we had a decent chance of legalizing, but I didn't know for sure. So that's been monumental. And then you and I were both at the uh you know, at that extraordinary gathering about psychedelics in Denver that MAPS and Rick Doblin's organization, MAPS organized, um, you know, with twelve thousand people showing up. And to see the rapid evolution of scientific research, one that is like what happened in the sixties, early seventies, but is at, really at a whole new level and a whole new level of legitimacy. And yes. with Oregon and Colorado passing these you know decriminalization initiatives and many localities, so that's really big. And then you see the ballot Initiative in Oregon about introducing a Portugal-style model of all drug decriminalization and, and shifting the resources towards drug treatment and harm reduction. And that was unforeseeable just a few years ago, and hopefully will be rele- replicated elsewhere. And then you see the significant reduction in mandatory minimum drug sentences. You see the number of people getting incarcerated for drug sentences going down quite substantially from where it was 15, 20 years ago. So there's still a huge way to go, and the you know the onset of fentanyl and fentanyl uh, overdose crisis has obviously caused a lot of people to retreat back into some kind of drug war thinking. But we've come a substantial way from where we were. The basic prohibitionist edifice remains in place with drugs like heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, and now illicitly you know produced and sold fentanyl. But the fact that we peeled off some major portions and that public opinion has shifted in a big way, that harm reduction is now part of official national policy, right? Yes. That the yes. United States 12 years ago, you know, basically stopped being the global leader of the drug, drug war of the global war on drugs. These are all significant advances that, you know, underscore that progress can be made, but that we sure have a long way to go.
0: I want to comment on uh, the, the uh progress that we've made on harm reduction, uh, because it's a story about Dr. Marsha Rosenbaum, the uh, head of the Drug Policy Alliance on the West Coast. She was on my program in roughly 2005 on this very program, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And 10 minutes before we were about to go on the air, we got a call from my engineer said, uh, Dr. Miller, there's a call from the White House. And I said, oh, come on, somebody's kidding around with you. And she said, no, it's a call from the White House. I said, get the phone number and call back. It must be crank. So she calls back and sure enough, it's the White House. So I get on the phone and I say, well, you know, how can I help you? Well, this is Dr. David Murray and uh, I'm here in the White House and I hear you're having Dr. Marsha Rosenbaum on your program talking about something called needle exchange. And I said, well, I I think she may be talking about that. Uh, She's an advocate of harm reduction. He said, well, I want to come on the program. And I said, well, sir, you know, we're going on now in seven minutes. And, you know, we didn't know anything about this. And I'm really not prepared to take another guest. But if you want to call in during the program, you're most welcome to. Now, what's relevant about this story is that the White House was aware of both my program this little tiny program in the middle of nowhere and aware of masha's research and that she was coming on the program how they even knew that is a mystery to me to this very day but he was so opposed to ha- to this needle exchange and the tone of voice he used when he used the- said the words needle exchange as if you know it was dancing with the devil was fascinating to me so yeah. I don't know if I, I... Mean,
1: Richard, I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, I mean, I, I don't know. It may have been a fluke that they heard about it, but I mean, the fellow you're mentioning, David Murray, I mean, he was of all the people who worked in the drugstore's office, many of whom I crossed paths with, some of whom I broke bread with over 30 years. He really stood out as being among the top two or three really bullies. I mean, really a kind of quite repulsive in many ways. Um, you know, there's one time I debated him. I can't remember Chicago or whatever. And I just kicked his butt left, right and center. I mean, the guy was supposed to come out to dinner afterwards and just bailed on the whole thing. You know, there wasn't some of the guys you debate. Herb Kleber was a very influential, the first deputy drug czar, you know, a right wing guy. I think he did a huge amount of harm with his opposition to harm reduction, medical marijuana. But nonetheless, you can still break bread with some of these people, right? Uh Others like David Murray. I mean, there was another time he and I testified before Congress together. And this is a guy who would, you know, pretend to be all about the evidence. And then when you just kind of scraped off the surface, it, you know, the dishonesty that permeated out of him was really remarkable. He was, that was also the point when, um, John Walters in the early two thousands was the drug czar for president Bush. Yeah, He had been, I, I used to refer to him as William Bennett's mini me. You know, you and I will remember William Bennett was the first oh, yes. drug czar under the first president Bush. And John Walters was a kind of protege of him and really yes. a kind of sad sack. And, um, but just another guy whose singular mission was trying to advance drug testing to get drug testing accepted in schools all around America, something which he fortunately utterly failed in accomplishing, never had the guts to come out and publicly debate. And and Murray was one of his clones on this sort of thing. You know, so, I mean, in a way, I'm almost grateful that they were such outrageous, dishonest jerks because there was that the outrageousness of their claims, the opposition of harm reduction the claims that there's no such thing as medical marijuana, all this sort of thing. I think they went so far. They were so outrageous that, you know, the key people in the middle, you know, I, I, one line I've oftentimes used, Richard, to my allies is we don't win. Drug policy reform doesn't win until we persuade the ordinary American parent that our message is more persuasive than the other side's message, the drug war message. Right. And those guys were so outrageous in their messaging that it really made it easier and easier for us to persuade the center of the American public that we had the more persuasive message, that we were the ones grounded in science and evidence and compassion, not the status quo government drug warriors.
0: Yeah. Are we continuing to make progress? You mentioned that you mentioned that 26 states have passed either recreational or medicinal well, um, no, marijuana. I think it's
1: probably about 24 have legalized fully. Most recently, I think, Minnesota, uh-huh. on Mar- you know, and so it, I mean, basically, I think over half all Americans now live in a state where marijuana is legal for adults. And, and at the, the same at the very well, same it's time, it's, yeah. it's
0: illegal federally. And if the feds want to, they can go into those 24 states and make arrests. And people are aware well, of that.
1: That is true. That is true. But the fact that you now have 70 percent public support and that you now have, um, you know, fit over, fit, you know, half the states fully legal. And then I think it's 38 states that have legalized marijuana for medical purposes. The fact is the feds have that power, but they have not really been exercising that power now for many years. And even when Trump was in and he put, uh, what was his name, um, uh, was it Jeff Sessions, the you know the right wing attorney general, sure. in there? In the end, they they made a lot of noise about rolling things backward, but they never really did. So the fact that and and so the, it is still technically legal under federal law, and that creates problems for legally regulating this stuff. But I think if you ask why, I mean, remember the feds are typically the last ones to change with the repeal of alcohol prohibition. You know, you had to have three of the states passing their own, you know, uh, repealing prohibition of their own states before Congress finally acted in 1919, right? That's first. Secondly, you have a Republican, Republicans now in Congress who are not consistent with a major, substantial majority of Americans on a whole range of issues, but they have the political power to things, to block things. And so you have key Republicans in the House of Representatives who don't want to move things forward. Thirdly. You know, President Biden was among all the Democrats in the Democratic primary back in 2019 20, the least supportive of marijuana legalization. So you have a White House which has been very reluctant to lead and in any way be proactive on this issue. And so that's been a mild part of the problem. The bigger part of the problem, I think, is that you have, although the numbers are there, right? And there's, if you could just put it to a straight floor vote in the House of Representatives and the Senate, You would get a majority for legally legalizing marijuana at the federal level right now. The problem is getting it through. You know, the, you know, not, not, the, the House is not the problem. That's already gone through the House. It's on the Senate side where you have 40 of the 50 Democrats who support legalizing marijuana, but, you know, eight to 10 who are wishy washy on the fence, including, you know, your senator from California, Dianne Feinstein, 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 who is just, you know, been notoriously anti-marijuana. I mean, she would sign on to chair anti, you know, the opposition side on local ballotists in California. And you have others as well. And then you have a handful of Republicans who support it, but they may be wary of breaking ranks with the leadership of McConnell, you know, um, you know, in the Senate. So, you know, it's just the stickiness and the, and the, the, the general incompetence of, of the U.S. Congress on many issues. Um, that's really been the problem on the federal side.
0: Where do we where do we stand moving forward towards decrim and or legalization of psychedelic substances?
1: Well, I mean the momentum's been amazing. In t- Look, first of all, you know, as as I think was announced in Denver, it looks like a very good chance that NDMA is going to be approved first by the FDA and then the DEA, or then rescheduled by the DEA in the middle of next year. So that's going to open up, you know, basically. People, doctors, physicians, maybe others under their supervision being allowed to prescribe and utilize MDMA and not just for PTSD, which is what it will be approved for, but presumably other conditions as well, because, one, as you know, right off label. So that's looking likely to happen. The big challenge on that front will be who will pay for it, you know, because the, the fear is that given it's not that the drug is that expensive, it's that if you're going to provide it with counseling. Counseling takes time. It takes hours. It takes hours, not just during the session, but the, the prep and then the uh, you know the integration afterward. So the question is, can insurance companies, both private and public, be persuaded that this makes sense for them to do? And so I think more and more you know efforts are being devoted to trying to ensure that the insurance companies will be ending up. So won't This won't just be limited to a form of therapy for more affluent people. It looks like psilocybin. May also be approved both in the u s and europe, maybe by twenty twenty five or so twenty four twenty five um maybe for intractable depression or other conditions yeah one and form
0: then, of one form of psilocybin has been approved by the dEA at and there's some inroads being made towards insurance paying for it. I think it's called spravata
1: well spravata that's ketamine i think not not a uh, is that it's ketamine that's ketamine, yeah, ketamine. spravata i think is ketamine that has been approved. Ketamine, obviously, is a drug that can be psychedelic and that is now being used by therapists. It's also more and more ketamine clinics popping up all around the US and around the world to help people dealing with intractable depression and sometimes with pain. So I think on the... I mean, Richard, if somebody had said to either one of us 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that in 2023, there would be psychedelic research centers... At Harvard, Yale, Columbia, NYU Langone, Johns Hopkins, UC Berkeley, I think, UCSF, UCLA, and Baylor, and I think University of Alabama, and Florida, and University College London, and a host of other places, you would have thought we were smoking something, right? (laughs) But it's been, it's really been astounding. And then the other issue is these decriminalization initiatives that Oregon pioneered in 2020, the decriminalization of psychedelics, which was on the ballot the same time with another. Oregon initiative, which was really led by my successors at Drug Policy Alliance on all drug decrim. I mean, you know, they pioneered Oregon, then Colorado improved on the Oregon initiative and narrowly passed that one just a few months ago in late 2022. I think the question will be whether or not more of those initiatives can continue to pass at the state level. And then separately, you have legislative efforts to open up research funding on Texas, you know, with the push of the former governor Rick Perry, who spoke at the MAPS conference in Denver a few weeks ago, you know, so you have all sorts of legislative bills involving psychedelics research or maybe decrim that are moving forward and sometimes being passed by state legislatures. So that's significant. I saw in Kentucky just uh, a month or so ago, as part of the big payout from uh, the, by by all the pharmaceutical companies and distributors involving the overdose crisis, that Kentucky decided that they're going to spend, I think, 40 million of their opioid settlement payout for Ibogaine research. So, I mean, Kentucky supporting <laughs> Ibogaine research. I mean, so the world is changing. And then you look outside the US where Australia, you know, recently approved allowing physicians to prescribe us, uh, you know, psychedelics, uh, you know, for various uh, mental health conditions. And that's going to be implemented slowly over the next couple of years. But you know they're providing a pathway there as well. Uh Canada's making some progress uh other places in Europe. So I'm feeling pretty optimistic. Not to say that there's not going to be a moment where the media gets tired of all these amazingly positive stories about psychedelics and psychedelics therapy and they start reporting on the people as was true 50 years ago as is true today who get hurt by their use of psychedelics, you know, the people who you know, jump off a building, or or the yeah. people who do something really stupid. I or laugh because who nobody, a, had,
0: nobody ever really jumped. There's no evidence that anybody ever really jumped off a building, but uh, it, it well, got into it got into the, no, it, into no, the Richard, consciousness. no. I think
1: there, I think there were people who went out windows and off porches. You know, but not because of a,
0: LSD. That they, they attributed it to LSD, but I don't think well, that. it we're I think there sure. actually
1: are some cases involving a few. I mean, they're not common, but I think for... there have been cases of people who were, you know, their friends weren't watching yeah. out for them. They weren't doing basic harm reduction. Um, you know, I'm, by the tragic... way, I'm
0: yeah. I'm 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 trying to circumvent what you pointed out. The media might do and start focusing the other way. And I'm I'm working on a I'm fast tracking a book on uh, called psychedelics adverse effects and. Uh-huh. Uh, and I want to get that information out to the public as much well, as possible. Important.
1: Look, just as we know, there are some people, you know, sometimes, oftentimes with a, a predisposition or maybe even an active mental illness and who can take a high dose of psychedelics. And, you know, they don't really, you know, I mean, on one hand we say, we don't want people to come back to baseline. You do want people to be positively transformed in some respect by a, high dose experience. And the other thing is some people are are landing up worse than where they started and it's small, but it is a risk factor. It like is a risk factor. People... And the public
0: has a right to know. I want to ask you about yeah. a tactic that I've tried uh, recently and get your opinion mm-hmm. on it. I went to the uh, city council and the city of Fort Bragg here where I live part time. And I proposed um, that they decriminalize psychedelic plants and fungi and then I got the idea and, and at my presentation in Denver at the MAPS conference, I asked the audience to all go home to their city cities and go to their city councils and propose the decriminalization of psychedelic plants and fungi and to spread the word through emails that they're doing so. Do you think this mm-hmm. is a tactic that could get some, some traction where people around the country started approaching cities? and uh, directly and making these proposals, would that be a, an effective well, tactic? I
1: mean, I mean, Richard, you know, that has been the tactic. I mean, all this stuff started with a local, was it a, a referendum? I think a referendum in Denver back oh, yes. about 10 years ago. And then Oakland, I think it was passed through the city council. And you now have cities all around the United States that have actually passed these referendums. They are not; they cannot actually legally change state law, right? right. And they're also very much modeled on uh, the lowest pro- low, what we call lowest priority marijuana referendum that was pioneered in Seattle uh, by a fellow named Dominic, Dominic Holden and then picked up in California and a lot of other places, which basically, they were local referendum or initiatives that, that said that although we cannot change state law and local police officials are beholden to state law, we as a community are directing the local police to treat marijuana possession as a lowest priority. Right. Right? So they were not legally binding on the cops, but they sent a message. And then the psychedelics reform movement, beginning with Denver in um, what was it in twenty, six, fifteen, sixteen, 16 or something like that. They pioneered applying that to psychedelics, which they called a decrim, but it's effectively since a locality cannot decriminalize something. That's only up to a state or the feds, but to say treat as lowest priority. So those have popped up now, I think, in dozens of cities around the country. I think it is important. It demonstrates local support. It puts the issue out there. It gets it in the media. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's uh, I think a very important technique. And I think it's what helped result in the Oregon and Colorado initiatives that passed in 2020 and 2022.
0: What I'm asking about, Ethan, is I I well, I'm not aware of an organized national movement. I'm aware of all these local movements that you've talked about. I'm in touch with Carlos Plazola, who you know spearheaded the Oakland campaign, and he's working on a, on a national campaign. But I don't know of any organization that is organizing a national campaign for people to spread out all over the country from well, wherever they live and.
1: You, I mean, I know. You, one could, for example, take a look. There's an organization called Plant Medicine Coalition that I think was founded by Melissa Lavasani, who's based in D.C. And so, Plant Medicine Coalition, I think, is one of the organizations that's trying to create a national network. I think there are a few other national networks. There is the Decrim Nature Movement. I think a Decrim. Is it called Decrim Nature? Decrim. A um, Decrim. I'm, I'm spacing on it right now. But um, but I mean, so there is some national effort. I do think that they are providing something in the way of models for what this legislation can look at. So I think there are resources that people can take. I mean, look, people can always go to a city, to the leaders in a particular city where they pass this and say, please send us what you have. But I do think this Plant Medicine Coalition Group is actually providing a more national resource for that.
0: Uh, thank you. I will follow up and uh, and and I will contact them. Mm-hmm. So let's hear something about your podcast, Psychoactive.
1: Well, I mean, I I tell you something, Richard. When I when I uh, when I first uh, stepped down from running DPA uh, in the spring of 2017, six years ago, and people asked me like, what did I most you know want to do? And I wanted to take life easy at that point. I'd been working around the clock for my whole adult life, really. <laughs> and, 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 but, but I thought, you know, a podcast would be good. Cause like, unlike teaching in a university or having a radio show where you have to be someplace, you know, once or twice or three times a week, I didn't want to be confined in that way. And a podcast is you and I know, even if you don't want to call your podcast a podcast, you know, it allows you, you can tape three or four, put them in the, in storage and just roll them out, even if you're off somewhere on vacation. So I thought about it. Nothing popped up. And then at the beginning of the pandemic, 2020, I think it was right in the pandemic, I got an email, um, from, um, from, um, um, wait, I'm just spacing his name right now. Um, Oh my God. The famous, the famous movie, uh, famous, uh, movie, movie director, um, uh, uh oh, give me a hint and saying. I'll help you. Uh, he did the black swan. He did, uh, uh, Requiem of a dream, um, I can't believe I'm saying his name right now. Um, uh,
0: Not Scorsese. Darren
1: Darren Aronofsky. Darren Aronofsky. Okay. So Darren Aronofsky, well-known movie director. He had already been supportive of Drug Policy Alliance. I'd known him a little bit for 20 years. And he sends me an email. He says, you want to do a podcast on psychedelics? And I say, no, I want to do one on all drugs. So he says, let's do it. And then he was about to partner with iHeartRadio, which is like the second biggest podcast platform in the world. So basically, lo and behold, we launched this podcast. I decided to call it Psychoactive. And it's basically the co-producers are iHeart and Darren Aronofsky. And we did 80 episodes in 80 weeks, starting in the summer of 2021 and concluding in the early 2023. And I mean, really everything. I mean, probably did, I'd say probably a quarter of the sessions are more about psychedelics. But we did it on the drug wars in Russia, in the Philippines, in Mexico, in Colombia. We did it on cannabis and cannabis regulation. I interviewed historians. We did it on heroin and fentanyl. We did it on drugs like kava and kratom and cot, right? We did stuff on the overdose crisis. We did stuff on, I mean, you name it. And the politics, I had had Senator Schumer on. I had Congresswoman, the Republican Congresswoman. Who supports marijuana legalization, Nancy May I had Nora Volkow, the head of NIDA, National Institute of Drug Abuse, sign, and grills her about what I saw as her misplaced priorities. So it was just, it was a wonderful run. And then after, at the end of it, you know, iHeart said, Well, we love it, but it's not on a trajectory to make us real money. So sorry. And Darren Aronofsky said, Well, Ethan, let's find a way to keep doing it. And I said, You know what? At this point, I want to take a break. You know, 80 episodes in 80 weeks. And I did a lot of prep work. I mean, if I was interviewing somebody about their book, I read the whole book. If I uh, was so, interviewing, here, you here. know, I, I mean, I, I spent days preparing. Some of them were easy, but some of them were a lot of work. So it's nice yeah. taking a break. And I, I'll tell you, Richard, at the conference in Denver a few weeks ago, uh, you know, the MAPS conference, I got so much positive feedback, from, including from lots of people I had never met, um, that it really kind of gave me a kick to say, you know, we said, uh, you know, you really should get this thing going. So maybe later in the year. Meanwhile, I, I, I've been meaning to write a book that would be kind of part memoir, part history of the drug policy reform movement, part lessons for activists. And I got to find a way to, you know, sit my ass down and, and, and do that. Uh, I, so, I
0: support you writing the book 100 percent. You know, I okay. took a I took a break for two years after when I stopped doing national public radio before I moved into this Internet radio. I took a two-year break. It was really nice to have a two-year break and yeah. not have to keep doing that every single week. But the oh, thing tell me about, yeah. the thing that's really been the most fun and exciting for me, Ethan, is for 15 years, I had to go to a little radio studio about the size of a closet. You know, it's a big closet. And I had to be there all the time in order to broadcast. And then when the pandemic hit, all of a sudden... It's all on the computer, and you and I, we could go. You can broadcast from anywhere in the world. I go to Wilbur Hot Springs. I broadcast. I'm staying with Jolie in a motel. I can broadcast. So I'll tell you this.
1: I, I agree totally. The interesting thing for me was I did almost all the podcasts out of my tiny little closet in my tiny New York city apartment where I've lived for 30 years uh-huh. because they wanted, you know, they say, get in your closet and, you know, put the muffling around and that way you multiply the right. studio. like So I'm literally sitting in a closet with my elbows <laughs> squeezed together and, and <laughs> this thing. And I probably, I did one episode where I went to the safe injection site up in Harlem and I did one on the road like that. And I did a few, you know, from friends' homes, but by and large, there I was in my little closet doing this thing. And I saw that even the some of the famous podcasters, what was it, Ira Glass, I think. You know, he had a little foot of himself in uh, you know, sitting in his closet. So it was nice. you know, when this thing when the pandemic started to ease, I could have gone down to a studio, but then I'm thinking, I'd rather sit in my little closet where I That's could just, right. you know, go work six feet instead of schlep on the subway down to some studio and have to set up there. So, you know, I mean, if I was interviewing people live, right, with a video, then you go down to a studio. But the way we're doing it now, and you and I both use this uh, Riverside program, which is very good, you know, it's, I think, really easy to to do it from home. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I think we're done. I
1: think so. It's been really, Richard, you know, listen, I've appreciated your friendship and having you as an ally all these many, many years. I mean, I remember going to your home. Where's your home on uh, just on the other side? Of the in American, Tiburon. Carolina. The one in Tiburon. In Tibur- I remember going to your home in Tiburon when you were hosting a fundraiser for normal. Must have been 20 years or so ago. At least. And the and the district attorney, Terrence Hallinan, had come there for the normal fundraiser because he wanted to show his support. But because he was the, the DA, he could not be seen in a room. With cannabis being consumed. So I remember we had to like watch out before Terrence moved from one room to another to make sure the room he was going in did not have somebody actively smoking a joint. And you think about that's what it was like when Terrence was in power, what late 90s, early 2000s, and to say we've now come a long way. And part of it has been, you know, the support and, uh, you know, sustained commitment of people like yourself who have been out there, you know, helping behind the scenes, helping with the, in a public way, helping with your writing and your speaking. So I really, really want to. Thank you for all your efforts.
0: Well, same is true for you too Ethan for everything you've done. I've learned so much from you and and uh, and quoted you so often over the years. And please tell Marsha the story if she if she uh, uh, has forgotten it uh, about I, I, David I'm sure she I'm sure David, she
1: has not forgotten that story. David you know? Murray
0: trying to block trying to block her interview.
1: Yeah, my God, and no more comments need be said. And also, I should just say, for people who are interested, the next Drug Policy Alliance conference is there hasn't been one since before the pandemic. It's going to be in the Phoenix area in Arizona in October. So people should just go to the drugpolicy.org website, check it out, consider coming. That is still the leading, you know, even though it's been surpassed in size by things like the MAPS conference in terms of bringing the broader movement together, dealing with the whole spectrum of drug issues. It's a good place to really get immersed in that broader movement.
0: Yes. You know, there was a time years ago uh, when I was involved directly with, uh, with Rob Campier, With I was on the national board of the Marijuana Policy Project, where I thought there was room, or maybe good reason, to pull together the DPA and the MPP and MAPS and form, you know, in some form a coalition. But I, I think that, the, you know, they've worked in concert to a certain extent.
1: Well, I'll tell you something. I mean, what I can say is that there was a moment uh where m p p was going through some hard times, and so the yes. drug policy Alliance had to consider whether or not to absorb them and in the end, things righted themselves at m p p we never had to go there. But you know, I think there's always been a good case that marijuana policy project had both the had the advantage and the disadvantage of being focused one hundred percent on marijuana reform, right. And DPA yes. had the advantage and disadvantage of advancing marijuana reform part and parcel with the broader drug policy reform objectives, right? And it, it made sense, I think, to have one organization that was singularly focused on the marijuana issue and another one that saw it as part of the broader drug policy reform movement. And I think with MAPS, I think Rick has done spectacularly well. You know, the one problem with too much concentration, especially, you know, we forget how diverse these issues can be. And in the psychedelics movement, there's always been a group of people, especially among the scientists, who really wanted to keep arm's length from the broader drug policy reform movement. But one of the things I've loved about Rick Doblin, and that's you know, not just our friendship, but our, our, kind of our being allies for so long, is that Rick has always seen the psychedelics movement in two ways that I'm very supportive. The first is that he said that psychedelics reform is not just about the science. Obviously, the science is, is baseline and pivotal. But it's also about it's about about people's individual right to use where you and I started our conversation. It's about indigenous use. It's about religious uses. All of this is part of the movement, you know, and the scientists struggle with that. And eventually they've kind of come on board. I think Rick has prevailed. And the second thing is that Rick has always seen the psychedelics movement, the psychedelics area as part and parcel of the broader drug policy reform movement. And I think that's really central, really, really central. For example. If, in fact, and it looks likely that MAPS will succeed, that once MDMA is legalized, that you know they stand to be the sole provider for the first five or six years, which could potentially bring in hundreds of millions of dollars into the public benefit corporation that MAPS owns, but basically for the benefit of MAPS. And MAPS has made a commitment that some portion of those funds, while most of it will focus on psychedelics reform and research and science, that some portion of those funds will go will go towards the broader global drug policy reform movement, and that's a major commitment for an okay. issue specific organization like MAPS to make. So, you know, this this I think it's been good that the organizations remain separate. But I think it's it's also good. You know, we always found ways to collaborate, and even with you know with with MAPS and DPA, there was almost never any friction. With MPP, you know, the ahead of it, Rob Campy, was a difficult personality, and so there would be. There would be tensions and such that, but our staff always dealt with one another. I would sit down with Rob; we would hash things out. Um, You know, and I think that the friction. I, in fact, I would say that if one compares the drug policy reform movement over its first three decades with the first three decades of the of the uh, of the uh, reproductive rights movement, of the gay rights movement, of the civil rights movement, I would say that we that we devoted fewer resources, that we wasted fewer resources on internecine conflicts than any of those bigger movements. Did. I agree with I you a
0: hundred percent. I know all of you uh, for, for, for decades. And I agree a hundred percent, the least <laughs> infighting. And, and that is so positive and so important because it's always been uh, an enigma to me that we allow fighting on the same side of the barricades, which is such, it, it just defeats us.
1: Well, to me, it's never been an enigma. To me, it's been human nature. Human <laughs> nature is to do. As I you know, I would give those speeches each year at the normal conferences or other advocacy conferences. And I say, you know something? The people you hate the most in any movement are your allies. Your enemies, they're out there. You don't really know them. You rarely see them. <laughs> But your allies, those are the ones you fight over for funding and for credit and girlfriends and boyfriends and tactics and strategies. And you're working up close and you can really not stand some people. But our obligation as activists is to keep our eye on the pride and to make sure that that that, that, that doesn't get in the way. I gave a speech where I should tell you, there was a little psychologist gathering in New York back in the fall. And the one line that people most remembered, especially the younger ones, was I said, you know, one rule I always had for myself was there could never be more than five people in the entire movement who I was not on speaking terms with. you know, it was like that max, right? And even with those five, I always ensured that we had ways of communicating organizationally, whether by email or through our staff or colleagues, that that's what it means to build a movement. You can't let the petty bullshit get in the way of accomplishing the end result and pursuing the mission. Hear, here,
0: here, hear. Here, here. That, okay, that's man. A, that's a great <laughs> quote to end with. You can't let the petty bullshit get in the way of the mission because exactly. the mission of the mission is the mission.
1: That's, that's exactly right. And we've made a lot of progress and hopefully we're going to continue to do so. I think we will.
0: And thank you all listeners for being with us on today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health and Politics. As you know, we broadcast every week at nine o'clock. If you want to get the newsletter that'll tell you who's going to be on the program, you can just send us an email at info at mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. Until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.